What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Lisa, let's talk pigs, shall we? It's been uh, one year since the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Asian swine flu initially broke out in China. New estimates show that the country's pig herd could be reduced by more than half at year end compared to last year. To get the latest on what that means for the global pig market, let's we welcome Christine McCracken. She's the senior analyst covering animal protein for Rabobank. Uh, and she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She braved the heat. We appreciate that. Uh, Christine, thanks so much for joining us. So give us kind of the latest on this, the African swine fever and, and what it's doing to, first of all, the Chinese herd and market and then the global market. Sure. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Generally, in, in Asia, it continues to move fairly aggressively throughout China, uh, specifically in southern China, and is moving into neighboring countries. So from the standpoint of the global market, about half of the world's hogs were in China prior to the ASF outbreak. Roughly half of those have been lost, or a quarter wow. of the world's supply. So a lot of pigs already gone, and it continues to move. Uh, in terms of the market, uh, prices had been fairly stagnant. Uh, you know, with that those losses, a lot of that pork actually ended up in the market, um, and and it weighed on prices for majority of the spring and summer. Uh, now we're going into the the stronger demand period with a big holiday season coming up, Chinese New Year, uh, first of next year, and price have started to move strongly higher, up about 30% just in the last 30 days, um, and roughly double year ago levels. So it's it's taken a long time, but prices have moved up really strongly. And, and uh, just in Asia, not a big uh, reaction here in the U.S. or in Europe. Well, so let's talk about the U.S. and China in terms of pork production and imports and exports. So uh, if I understand this correctly, China imposes a pretty big tax, a pretty big uh, tariff on U.S. pork. Is that correct? It is. It's about 62 percent on the sales of pork to China, and and that's obviously significantly higher than the rest of the world that don't face that tariff. So we're at an extreme disadvantage relative to the rest of the world. So if China would like to make up for the hogs that were lost because of the virus, where do they go? Well, you know, there really are just a few countries in the world that can make up that that deficit. Um, Europe is the largest. Uh, they have about twice as many hogs as the U.S. and are free to export as much as they can to China. And they have been aggressively exporting, specifically Spain and Germany and Denmark, the Netherlands. All have been benefiting from exports to China. Um, Brazil is another big one that can export to China and has been, uh, but their their herd is just a fraction of, of what Europe has or the U.S. Um, outside of those two countries, Canada has has some hogs, but has now been blocked from uh, mm. exporting to 
China on the basis of some political disagreements, possibly Huawei. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of red tape there that's that's keeping them from exporting to China. And the U.S. Um, has been shipping, even with the 62% tariff, but still at very low levels. So is, is there any incentive for the U.S. Um, industry to increase the herd just to fill the global uh, uh, s supply loss coming out of China? Well, you know, there there would be if, if markets were open. That That is a possibility. But I think if you look generally, there's a lot of constraints to expanding. It's a very, t you know, a, a long uh, kind of lead time. It takes about two and a half years to expand the herd. So it's not a simple process. Okay. You couldn't do it quickly. You might be able to add a little bit more weight make bigger hogs so you'd have more pounds to sell. But generally, you know, in terms of total expansion, not very likely. A lot of that's tied to labor. Uh, the, the plants generally are tight on labor. The ice raids in the last few weeks obviously have a lot oh, of right. yep. nervous workers. But prior to that even, we'd been facing a labor shortage in the, in the packing industry. Just not enough places um, to slaughter the pigs if, if, in fact, they were available. You know, it's so interesting, and Christine, it, you grew up on a farm in Minnesota, and we were talking about this, and I just find it so interesting how, uh, especially pork producers, are really at the epicenter of a lot of the tensions that we're seeing increasingly, whether it's the tariffs that are making uh, their hogs less in demand than those in Europe or Brazil, as you were saying, or the, the plants where they can't get enough workers. So has sort of, is there a general feeling of unrest or, or sort of feeling of dissatisfaction among some of these pork producers? I think, I think they have been a bit frustrated. It's not just the issues with China or, you know, with regard to other trade disputes where it, we're trying to get a deal done with Japan. Um, that's our, our top value market for, for exports in terms of high value products. Uh, USMCA, still not ratified. We're looking for that to come through here later this fall. Um, Big, big markets in Mexico and Canada, really important for the pork industry specifically. And then, you know, generally all of these tariffs, not just impacting pork, but the feed supplies as well um, because of the the export uh, taxes on on, um, on soybeans, for example. So we're, we're facing a lot of issues in the, in the pork industry, and I think it's making it very complicated uh, from a political standpoint for these farmers to know how to move forward. But generally, uh, you know, I think they're they're pretty firm in their support. Uh, at this point in terms of uh, government, uh, you know, the government involvement and all of the things they're trying to do to open up these markets. Christine McCracken, thank you so much for being here. Christine McCracken is senior analyst focused on animal protein for Rabobank based in New York, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. An interesting piece of news came out earlier this week uh, in a widely circulated memo. The Business Roundtable, which is a 200 member organization, kind of reversed itself. And they're writing now that shareholder primacy is no longer the sole purpose of a corporation. Instead, corporations must include commitments to all stakeholders, which include customers, employees, suppliers and local communities. To get a sense of what this means for corporate America, we turn to our good friend Barry Ritholtz. Barry's a Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for joining us. So what do you make of this letter coming out of the Business Roundtable? Kind of fascinating, given everything we've seen in terms of 
rising income inequality and social unrest, both here and in Europe, it, it seems as if the CEOs of America have figured out that some trouble is off on the horizon and and they want to get out ahead of it. So this is the cynical view, right? That basically uh, these 180 some odd CEOs got together, said, all right, we need to take a stand. We're not just trying to raise profits. We're also trying to cater to the greater good. The cynical view is the greater good is sounds a lot better than our profits are falling and we don't know what to do with our money because uh, there doesn't seem to be anything to invest in that's particularly profitable. Barry, can you give us some perspective, some background on this roundtable group and their history of having sort of a political perspective? Sure. So... Uh, they they were formed in 1972 primarily as a counterweight against the rise of labor unions, the New Deal, big antitrust enforcement, big regulations. Uh, they very much were counter to President Roosevelt and everything that we saw going forward from the post-Depression era. So they can talk about wanting to support stakeholders, but... Look at what the roundtable has done. They, they've opposed consumer protections. They've opposed increases to rising a minimum wage um, compensation. They've fought antitrust um, enforcement. They really have been the only thing that matters is corporate profits and, and to the shareholders and anything else we're going to oppose. The challenge, and, and let me back up and, and give kudos to Jamie Dimon for He's been talking about this for a couple of years now. He's been giving speeches. His annual letter to shareholders has. So this isn't I don't believe this is just lip service. I think Diamond is serious about this. However, when you look at all of the members of the roundtable, they have very, very strong vested interests against the concept of stakeholder primacy. If you're Amex. You have fine print that's pages and pages long, and you have an arbitration clause built into your contract with your clients. That's not exactly um, customer-friendly. Uh, go, go down the list. Apple and Amazon, hey, you're the most successful companies in the world. Here's a crazy idea. Why don't you guys pay your taxes? It used to be, it used to be that the IRS enforced the tax regulation in a way that you could do whatever you wanted to do so long as it served a legitimate business purpose. But if the sole purpose of the reverse double Dutch, go to Ireland, to the Bahamas, to Liechtenstein, to Grand Caymans, to the U.S., if the sole purpose of that is tax avoidance, the IRS used to consider that illegitimate and would enforce it and say, no, you can't do that. You owe us $19 billion. So Amazon and Apple, these are signatories to this. Walmart, a signatory to it. To be fair to Walmart, yes, they spent years and years opposing increases in minimum wage. About three years ago, they raised their own minimum payments and they've dropped opposition to minimum wage. I think someone explained to them, hey, you guys are giant and have a lot of cash. So It's an advantage to you. So so the problem is all these signatories, they're, uh, look at all the big insurers and Morgan Stanley and AXA and some of the other people who, I don't remember if AXA signed, but a number of big insurers signed it. They're very much against the fiduciary standard, which would tremendously benefit 
their the clients of their firm, but it would cost them some profits. So balancing this broad rhetorical desire with the specific needs of the members of the business roundtable, that's a big challenge. So one of the challenges I saw just in terms of implementing this in a, in a real way is that most executive compensation is tied to shareholder returns. Where is the stock going? Um, if you really want to hold executives accountable to some of these uh, stakeholder issues, some of these softer issues, if you will, does that mean you have to change the executive compensation schemes for all of corporate, for a lot of corporate America to incorporate maybe environmental, sustainability, governance issues, all those types of things? So it's a really interesting point. And, and here's where, uh, again, I got to go back to giving Jamie Dimon a little bit of credit. And I think people have overlooked this. You know, the idea of stakeholder primacy over shareholder primacy, let me re- say that same thing, but in a slightly different way. We're more concerned with long-term sustainable profits for our company than just making the quarterly numbers. That's the subtext here. If you take care of your customers and your employees and your suppliers and everybody else involved in, in who has a stake in the company, well, that's fantastic long-term. Look at companies that are private. Look at, look at Vanguard that doesn't care about shareholders but cares about their employees and their customers and whatever. They became a giant that way. So substituting stakeholders for shareholders really means that you're asking the shareholders to think in terms of decades and years, not in terms of quarters. Now, the way we can tie this into the executive compensation, who is more interested in the quarterly numbers than the C-suite that, thanks to some late 90s legislation, are capped at a certain dollar amount, but have unlimited stock option compensation. The way to fix that is to say, we'll give you stock option compensation, but you can't cash in for 10 years. Well, you have to, you have to exercise, uh, you have to put up some cash and you have to exercise within five years and you have to hold it for five years. So at that point, nobody cares about next quarter. They start to think long-term. When we look at the emphasis on stock buybacks and the decline in CapEx, you have to think that that has a lot to do with it. Barry Ritholtz, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Barry Ritholtz is founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, also host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
When it comes to big tech, a sweet spot has been the cloud. And the cloud has been a profit driver from everyone from Amazon to Microsoft. Salesforce.com did have the first mover advantage and they got into this. They've also become a darling of hedge funds. Did you know, Paul, that uh, 13 hedge funds have more than 5% of the disclosed equity investments (laughs) in Salesforce? So let's talk about what's a crowded trade in the parlance of this. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting is that the shares are up about 6% so far year to date compared to 17.5% for the S&P. But let's get a perspective on what to expect from uh, their earnings. Anurag Rana joining us now here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Anurag is Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services for Bloomberg Intelligence. What are you expecting from Salesforce? Uh, not much any major surprises. We don't think uh, the China uh, is going to have an impact on their sales. In fact, we think Salesforce is one of the very few tech companies that should uh, weather any downturn if we do see in spending in this you know second half or next year. Why, why is the stock underperforming so greatly at a time when the cloud is being uh, ad- adopted pretty much across the board worldwide? A, it's done very well over the last few years. Second, the size of this company is like very large right now compared to any you know smaller mid cap company that is you know that could double or triple in size. It's difficult for a company like this to you know mathematically you know, from a, from a statistical point of view, give that kind of returns. But performance underlying is, should be very good in our view. Um, this is a company that is not exposed to China. And in our view, the two acquisitions that they did over the last, you know, 18 months or so should help their product growth going into next year. How important, how important, I'm looking at the Bloomberg uh, FA function for Salesforce and looking at the street consensus, you know, still over 20% revenue growth in each of the next uh, couple of years. How important is our R&A acquisitions to the underlying growth story at Salesforce? Because this guy is a serial acquirer, right? It, he has done such a good job of acquiring companies and then integrating them, coming up with newer products to sell under the client base. So go back in history and they have one particular uh, product called the sales cloud, which is where the company started off with, that still is predominantly their biggest product. And what they do is when they buy these newer, smaller units, they go to that large install base and try to sell them more products. That remains one of the core businesses for the company. And for a cloud application industry growing at 15%, these guys, you know, 15 to 18% organically and a few acquisition points, in a downturn, this is going to be a good place to hide. So where is Salesforce growing the fastest? It's all the emerging areas in terms of integration cloud, marketing cloud, uh, commerce cloud, areas that are ancillary or, or, or complementary to the you know, function of sales. So you want to go buy a product online, you can you know, use their uh, digital commerce platform to buy something. You want to do something on customer service side. Uh, and their latest acquisition of MuleSoft and Tableau will help you integrate a lot of data that you have on your premises. So Tableau was the most recent big deal that I can remember. So what's the some of the early feedback in terms of integrating this thing? And is this going to be a good deal, do you think, in hindsight? So think about it this way. A lot of enterprises still have their data on their premises. It's not on the cloud. I mean, so one could argue more than 70 to 80% of the data still resides on you know, companies like uh, Pepsi and Coca-Cola on their premises. You can take that data out and use something like a Tableau to see a visualization dashboard of all the different things that you have in-house. And they bought a company before that called MuleSoft. That remains the software that can help them do it. So it works very well with all the different front offices things that they have right now. 
So when we talk about the cloud landscape more broadly, I, I mean, I'm thinking Amazon, AWS has been a huge profit driver for them. Microsoft has been successful there. How much room is there for all of these companies to grow their cloud services at the same time? I mean, when do we reach saturation? It's a good question. So Amazon plays in the infrastructure layer. That's not the game for Salesforce. Salesforce is all applications. Microsoft has a sweet spot that has both infrastructure and applications. So it's it works very well. Uh, Salesforce actually- Can you just tell us what that means? So the infrastructure would be just giving the bare servers and the storage capacity for you to store your application. Got it. For Salesforce, the Salesforce application is like, you know, think about like a Facebook or a LinkedIn, the application that you can just log in and do something. That's the kind of work that they sell for enterprises, for salespeople to be more productive, customer service people to be more productive. It's very similar to the app that you have on your phone, but for an enterprise, uh, not so much for a, for a consumer. So Amazon is not in that business. Amazon doesn't sell those things. That's the differentiation of both these clouds, you know, rising in parallel. So one thing I know about the cloud business is that it is very competitive from a pricing perspective. And I know I've read your research in the past and it's kind of almost the concern might be it's a race to the bottom. Give us a sense of kind of the pricing in this market. How competitive is it? And is that kind of a risk for investors? Yeah. So as we talked about in the infrastructure level, layer massive pricing pressure on adding more capacity to build applications store more data on the salesforce applications or workday or viva those companies that sell enterprise applications there is not a whole lot of pricing pressure there because what they're selling is something so unique that only a handful of people do it that that scale so in workday for example it's cloud hr applications only two or three people work in that area and they are not trying to you know beat them each other down to the bottom same thing with Salesforce and the sales side of it. Um, but on the infrastructure side, we have massive pricing pressure. All right, so it, just to sort of build on that, as far as the competitive landscape, it sounds like Microsoft does have some offerings that do compete with Salesforce.com. Uh, who else is a competitor? Um, SAP is a big competitor. SAP is actually pushing a lot of their efforts. They acquired a company called Qualtrics just not you know long ago, and they want to integrate that kind of in their legacy cloud products and their uh, you know legacy on-premise products. And so they want to fight very aggressively with Salesforce. I think they should have a good. Uh, you know, runway of growth as well, but not at the expense of Salesforce, because in the, the place where Salesforce plays at, more than 50% of the revenue of the total addressable market comes from very, very small players. We think sales, SAP will gain market share from those smaller vendors, not so much from Salesforce. Anurag Rana, thank you so much for joining us. Anurag's a senior analyst covering software and IT services for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, previewing salesforce.com. getting out of, for, about the U.S. economy is highly conflicted and adding to some of the conflict was uh, today's July conference board leading economic uh, index, which actually came out positive and more positive than people had expected. Here to talk about it is Bart Van Ark. He is the conference board's chief economist joining us. Bart, I just want to get started with uh, the numbers. What exactly uh, did we see in July? 
Well, it's a pretty broad-based improvement, actually, in the numbers. Um, so uh, what particularly helps here is housing permits have picked up a fair bit. Uh, unemployment insurance claims have gone down, which was mentioned just a little earlier. Stock prices in July were okay, not in August, of course, but in July, the world. The leading credit index was okay. There are a few downsides. You know, for example, the PMI, the ISM index, has been down also in July. That's being continued. But if you balance it all out, it was actually a somewhat stronger improvement than we had expected. And I think what's very important is not just one month. Also, our six months average has improved quite a bit and is sort of back on track at about 0.8% growth. So the expansion just seems to extend a bit further. It's interesting. The uh, some of the data, uh, your data today, some of the PMI data. It, I think, we're, and you know, just thinking back to some of the retailers that reported this week, you know, it's just kind of reinforcing this uh, narrative that the consumer is generally pretty strong out there. But let's flip to the manufacturing, and that's seventy percent of the U.S. economy. But that thirty percent, the manufacturing side, uh, showed some signs, continued sh- signs of weakness, and we certainly have seen some weaker numbers out of. Europe, including Germany. So kind of what are you seeing on the manufacturing front? Yeah, so the manufacturing cycle is still very weak. And as you say, they are highly, highly dependent on what's happening in the rest of the global economy. So we've got Germany, we've also got the UK, uh, Japan, significant parts of Asia are weak. So that's why we expect that the industrial cycle will continue to be a downbeat on this whole story. But, you know, as you say, in the US, it's the consumer which really matters. As, as long as the labor market remains strong and they continue to see some wage increases, I think we will pull this along for a while. How much of the increase and the unexpectedly large increase in this uh, leading economic indicator uh, index is due to lower rates and the idea that the Fed was going to cut rates more than people had previously expected earlier in the year? Yeah, I think it's a little bit early to expect that is sort of the change in tune of the Federal Reserve is already playing out into the numbers, except for the confidence side. So I think on the confidence side, we will, you know, I think it has helped consumers to hear this story that there is, you know, lower rates and that helps them a little bit. Well, the only thing is about housing. You did see an improvement in housing. Yeah. There was an improvement in some of the credit metrics, which have to do with also the lower rates yeah. makes it easier to borrow and refinance, and as well as equities, right? That's a part of one of the uh, one of the factors in the index. So all of those things were sort of supported, and I'm just wondering how much of a boost that is. I think the mortgage rates are by far the most important here, and and that of course because that's where you really will see these long rates uh, putting you know, putting through into the mortgage rates becoming lower. So I think that's why this housing permits number comes in nice. You know, other housing indicators that also look pretty well. So I think the housing market is a very important portion of this uh, action. So it's interesting, the uh, lot of talk, uh, kind of growing talk uh, with that about a recession in the U.S. economy, maybe, you know, I guess in the beginning of the year, people were thinking, oh, mid-2020, now it's maybe pushed out to late 2020 into 2021. Um, but I guess, what, what, what is your data showing you, as, and what are your thoughts about a pending recession in the U.S., given just how far yeah. we are in the cycle? Of no, I, I would say, I mean, despite today's good number, which we're very happy about, uh, we still believe that the economy is on a nice edge. And uh, so our default scenario is a gradual slowdown of the U.S. economy to about 2% for the remainder of this year, which is slower than it was you know, last year and even the average of the beginning of this year. And into next year, it will be around this 2%, which, by the way, is the underlying long-term growth rate of the economy. So we're more or less at trend. But there is a down, a potential risk, of course, of very, very high. And, and again, the consumer really matters here. It's, there's a lot of uncertainty in the economy. The consumer seems to be okay with it. I mean, you know, the news comes in and goes out, and every day it changes on balance. I think it's kind of okay, but if any of these uncertainties, whether it is Brexit or the trade dispute or Hong Kong, is turning into a big shock, the, the, the consumer could pull back, and that would then be the alternative scenario of a much faster slowdown. So 
you say that even though this is positive, you think that the U.S. economy is on a knife's edge. What in the numbers is giving you that sense? Well, I think in the numbers, there's still, as, as we have seen in today's numbers, very little. But the underlying economic fundamentals have been weakening. You know, I mean, we're, we've been gradually slowing down to this trend growth of the economy. Yes, the labor market is still strong, but we're adding fewer jobs. Productivity is going up, but it's not going up very rapidly. So if you add all these factors up, then, you know, the U.S. economy is not gaining steam. We're just extending the expansion. And that puts the economy at a nice edge, because if there's a negative shock in the economy, you can very quickly get into trouble. But again, it's an alternative scenario. Our probability is on the default of about 2% growth. And are you expecting any kind of trade a deal done before the election, or are you just, is your base case assuming no? Well, the question is, what exactly is a trade deal? Yeah. I think both the U.S. and China want to get to some kind of agreement because this back and forth on not agreeing on anything is not helpful. The question is, what is the nature of that agreement? The most important thing, of course, is to get these tariffs off the table, or at least a threat of tariffs, and gradually pull them back. Whether we will have a more fundamental agreement which deals with you know intellectual property and technology and and foreign direct investment arrangements, I think that's probably something that will take more time. Bart Van Ark, thank you so much for joining us. Bart is the chief economist for the conference board. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.